and welcome to this episode of the Inclusive Educators Podcast, a podcast coming to you by way of the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Teaching and Learning, or the CTL. I'm Dr. Quartez Scott, and I serve in the dual capacity as Inclusive Pedagogy Lead in our CTL, as well as host of the podcast, and I'm excited to have you all joining us here today. If I sound a little bit different, is because I am a little bit different, because I'm a little bit under the weather, but I'm well enough to have this conversation, because I'm really excited to talk to Dr. Dewsbury. This is part, this is one of our three-part series in this conversation discussing the Norton Guide to Equity-Minded Teaching. Previously, we talked to um, Dr. Eses as well as Flower Darby on the first section of the book before the term. And then today we're going to be speaking with Dr. Dewsbury, who's going to be talking about during the term. Brian Dewsbury is an associate professor of biology and associate director of the STEM Transformation Institute at Florida International University. He is the principal investigator of the Science Education and Society, SEAS, research program, a team blending research on the social context of teaching and learning, faculty development of inclusive practices, and programming to cultivate equity in education. Previously, Brian was at the University of Rhode Island. Uh, Brian is a fellow with the John N. Gardner Institute, where he assists institutions of higher education in cultivating best practices in inclusive education. Welcome, Brian. Do you prefer Brian, your first name, or do you prefer to go by Dr. Dewsbury? I definitely prefer Brian. Okay. Let's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get that know, out of the way one. Yeah, no, the, hey. doctor, the doctor keeps my lights on, right? My name is Brian, so I... <laughs> so I appreciate that. I appreciate that perspective. <laughs> in previous episodes, um, you know, we've talked to different folks, you know, just about, mm-hmm. you know, what their preference is in terms of going by, you know, names and everything. And um, for me, I'm kind of getting more comfortable with just Quartez. Like, I literally had someone call me today about a reference check for somebody else. And the more they kept saying Dr. Scott, I was like, you know what, Quartez is, you know, perfectly fine. <laughs> like, right, right. You know, when we're in community. But um, but yeah, typically for myself, uh, to honor the underrepresentation of Black people specifically, but Black men in particular, and formalized educational spaces, mm-hmm. I do prefer to go by Dr. Scott in those spaces, just to right. uh, show representation mm-hmm. and solidarity for right. us inside of right. those spaces. Um, so, well, thank you, one, for uh, for being a part of the show. And I just, I must ask, because I believe ECs was also formerly at Florida International University. She she was. Um, I met ECs. I was a grad student. So I, I was at FIU for quite a while as a grad student because I did a master's and a PhD. So when I, <clears throat> when I was doing, the, when I began the PhD and I, you know, for want of a better expression, fell in love with teaching and, and really kind of turned my attention towards that as a career focus. Hmm. ECs had not too long been hired by FIU's Center for the Advancement of Teaching, right? So the hmm. CTL equivalent right at FIU. And um, I, I felt like we grew up together a little bit. In fact, when I met her, she was finishing up her, her, her doctorate. Okay. Um, and she was already brilliant and that manifested pretty quickly and she kind of flew up in terms of her career. But, um, you know, the ways in which we envision the kind of work we do being equity focused, um, those were conversations that already began way back in 2009, 2010. And um, it, it's been a real joy and privilege to walk that road with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so we we were beyond work coworkers at that point, right? Um, and uh, yeah, continues to be the case. Awesome. Yeah. And um, I just happened to make that connection as I was looking at mm-hmm. both of your um, your introductions. And I saw oh, like they were both at Florida International, but I didn't know like what the what the overlap of that was. So right. 
that's how that's where the that's where the uh that's where the connection starts at for the international for the two of you yeah yeah that's what it was and then well then then beyond that we both uh i mean she does it in a different capacity now but we both were fellows with the john and gardner institute so mm-hmm. we did a lot of faculty development together through that um i think once she became provost and you know yeah provost you don't have time to do a ton of other things other than run a school um <laughs> her work with gardner became a little bit more limited i remain a fellow but um we still work together on a ton of things like this book right so <clears throat> yeah oh that's beautiful and i'm glad to see that you two continue on that connection and now you know see you say you both kind of grew up together right so mm-hmm. <laughs> now out flourishing in this world doing this really great work um you know advancing mm-hmm. faculty development particularly um as it relates to uh, inclusive teaching strategies so you know, before we get into it, one of the things I like to start off with as I'm talking to folks who are guests on the show is to talk about, uh, you know, like who inspired us along our own respective paths. Because what I've learned in doing a lot of these conversations is that not everybody who does inclusive teaching or faculty development starts off as like passionate about that in particular. It's kind of like one of those mm-hmm. areas that you just walk into and then you just grow a passion for, kind of similar to myself. But for you, can you just tell our listeners or just share a little bit about you know, what in educators have inspired you and, and lessons that you've learned from them that's reflected in your mm-hmm. own work? You know, that, that's a good question. And it's, it's, the answer to it is not as easy as um, it might sound because, you know, there are, times of, there are times in our past that people inspire us but we are not in a position to appreciate and understand that you are actually in fact being inspired. And sometimes it's only later on when you find yourself in a professional situation or through you know, navigating something that the lessons from that relationship become much more apparent, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I went to Morehouse College, historically black college in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I had some wonderful instructors. Um, I also had some not wonderful instructors, but but I I have some instructors that I, I remember to this day, and I remember I remember enjoying the class. I remember getting a lot out of it, but I never thought that being in an English class with Dr. Jocelyn Jackson would many 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 years later teach me how just examining texts so closely teaches you about navigating life and relationships and you know, complex uh, democracies. And I mean, without going into the books that we read, um, I, uh, Dr. Lawrence Bloomer was my ecology professor um, who I kind of met when I was almost feeling out of Morehouse. And I never imagined that the opportunity he gave me to work in his lab and found the environmental club and, and do things that gave my education some sort of purpose. I never realized how much that would come to inspire me as a science educator now. Right, mm-hmm. as somebody who studies mentoring and studies inclusive education. So um, I'm pointing to those two individuals, but there are others, right? And, um, mm-hmm. and I, think, I think the structure of that inspiration is worth articulating because it's not just like, oh, I see you, you inspire me, I go do this thing, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it has to, you have to kind of juxtapose that next to your own developmental state. Um, and that, because that then comes to impact and inform how you internalize inspiration at the receiver. <clears throat> no, yeah, that's great. And, um, and I certainly connect with that piece, right? You know, sometimes mm-hmm. we're not in a position to know that we're being inspired in a moment. Um, but, you know, that kind of goes with you know, some of the things that you all talk about as well inside of the book and, you know, like us learning from 
each other as educators, mm -hmm. but you know, because mm -hmm. the thing that we often reiterate to our educators and the work that we do in our Center for Teaching and Learning is that teaching is very much a socializing process. Mm -hmm. And uh, very few people that I've learned uh, in my experiences, you know, we I usually ask when I'm facilitating one particular presentation, um, you know, kind of like an introduction to inclusive teaching. I usually ask folks inside of the space, how many of you all in how many of you all have gone through some type of formalized educational training um, for 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 college level and typically you won't get more than five <laughs> people in yeah. a session where there's like maybe 30. I'm surprised you got that many to be honest. Me too. <laughs> I, I'm actually really surprised you got that many. Yeah. So um, that's one of the things that we talk about is you know it's it's very much you know a socializing process and it's really important for us to learn as much as we possibly can, even what you acknowledge, right? You know, I went to school and even though overall you could say like, I got a really great education, but we can all still point out some of those faculty mm -hmm. members um, mm -hmm. that we were being educated by that probably weren't the best, but then reminding ourselves, now I'm able to look back yeah. uh, with this lens now and right. then associate that with, they probably also didn't have a lot of good instructors in their own professional careers. As right. Cortez, well. I had a, a professor who I won't name, who would start the class at the beginning, beginning of the semester by saying 90% of you will fail. Mm. And of course, you know, back then I didn't know about, you know, inclusive teaching and actually that was just was my thing, right? Um, mm. But I mean, I was definitely old enough to like, this can't be the point, right? Like this, yeah. like how is this a good thing? Like how is, yeah. how is, you know, these are tuition paying young men is, you know, all male identifying school, you know. You know, 40, 45 of us here in this course that's, oh, by the way, required for a degree. Mm -hmm. Like, how is it a mark of honor that 35 of us or whatever will walk out of here with Fs? And I, I don't, it, 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 that experience remains with me, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, fortunately, I've been told that that class is no longer a requirement and no longer taught by that individual. But, and I know it's a little bit of an extreme case, but, I can also kind of look back on that and think about, I wonder what led him to think that that is how success is measured, mm -hmm. right? But a few among you who make it through the gauntlet. And I think when you phrase it that way, you realize that much of science in particular, science education, I'm picking on science here, science education tends to have a little bit of that mindset that whoever's made it through to the end of the semester with a passing grade, You've done just that. You've made it through, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody else who didn't is because of, of deficits that you possess that you weren't able to figure out. I think you did. And, um, and that kind of mindset runs counter to our role as facilitators, as our roles as people who believe that the potential exists and that teaching, as you said, is a social act. And it's about finding out the motivating factors that make students see that potential and make good decisions about the work. Um, but again, back to your original point, if you're not trained in this stuff, just because you have a PhD in chemistry doesn't make you a good teacher. Mm -hmm. So, so there's, there's a whole lot of different things to discuss with respect to that, right? But, but again, like the individual experiences, are, I can look back and remember, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that just didn't make any sense. <clears throat> yeah. Well, and going off of that, you know, as you're talking about, you know, your time at Morehouse, can you just talk a little bit about your own, and this is, you know, definitely for me as well, because I'm just for our listeners, um, you know, I think you stated that you're, you're in the Caribbeans right now. So I would, are you from the Caribbeans? 
Uh, I'm from Trinidad and Tobago. Okay. Um, and I'm actually in Miami right now. Miami, oh, okay. Um, which, um, you know, close to the Caribbean. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a reason I'm here. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I was born and raised in Trinidad and Tobago. I, I came to U.S. F1 visa, 1999, you know, like every other immigrant through that path. And um, yeah, it was an interesting journey since then. Okay, awesome. And the reason I got the Caribbean is because we're talking about me sending you the care package. And you said, <laughs> you said sending oh. it there. Okay, so that's why I got the confusion. No, 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 no. I said, right. make sure the rum is from the Caribbean. <laughs> oh, okay. Gotcha, gotcha, So, got yes. <laughs> so, okay. So, talking a little bit, you know, F1 visa and everything. So, uh-huh. can you talk a little bit more about how your own personal experiences, your lived experiences, your social identities, how that all plays into your own educational journey and how that has contributed to your own interest in inclusive and equitable teaching Mm -hmm. today as it relates to faculty development specifically. Yeah, Yeah, uh, you know, hard to have a short answer to that one because it's been, it's been overall an incredible journey. Um, But it's, it's been a, it's a journey where I had to do a lot of learning at the same time as experiencing the things I was learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, I joke with friends that I, I, I learned I was black when I moved to the U.S. And mm-hmm. I, I mean that semi-facetiously, right? Like, you know, obviously, phenotypically, I understood the biology of what's up. But, you know, for the most part, I didn't wake up every day for 19 years thinking about my identity. I, I wasn't you know, except for a few situations I can remember, but it wasn't a daily thing on my, you know, um, in my reality that I had to navigate and, and make decisions for personal protection or for, to get acknowledged or to move ahead. And um, I, I recognize the privilege in having that aspect of my life. Um, I'm not saying everybody in Trinidad was like that, but it certainly, you know, the places I grew up in, it certainly was like that. Mm-hmm. So, Coming to the U.S., especially coming to a school that was, you know, 3,100 young men. Um, <clears throat> I think when I went there were three white boys. <laughs> um, so the, H- the, the B in the HBCU was, was pretty literal. Um, I'm, I'm phenotypically looking like everybody else, but having a different reality in terms of my socialization. Mm-hmm. I, I had to grow into that, right? I had to understand the American Black experience, I had to understand the American Black experience as it's informed by different parts of America. So the guys who grew up in Memphis were very different to the guys who grew up in San Antonio, to the guys who grew up in Chicago. And they let you know, right? They, they let you know their, their musical styles, their style of dress, their way of viewing the world, their interpretation of Blackness and whiteness. Um, I, I'll confess to you, Cortez, that sometimes I would go one of the reasons I got to know Emory University also in Atlanta very well is I used to go across town there to play cricket with the international students because at least early on, I used to feel a greater sense of belonging with them than mm-hmm. at Morehouse, right? So I, I say all of this to, to say that one of the benefits I feel like be, being an international person of color is you both get to be part of the Black experience but also a spectator of it. Mm. Um, uh, you know, Chimamanda and Gozia feel captures a little bit of that sentiment in her book Americana, a little bit, right? Where you, you know, you're experiencing it, but you you're reflecting at the same time. You're seeing, you're seeing ways in which people interact that are actually kind of foreign to you because you're not Black American, but then also because you are Black and in America, right? Mm-hmm. You are being treated 
in the same kind of bin as everybody who looks like you. So I, I don't know how to articulate that for your audience to 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 really, you know, let that feeling sit, right? But but that's yeah. the best I can do, right? And and I think what that does in terms of my educator role is it really really helped me understand how students navigate a science classroom, how they navigate a campus where they might be a numerical minority, where they might be a cultural minority, um, how they think about the term minority, <laughs> to be quite frank. Yeah. Um, and I think in some ways helped me to anticipate a little bit how students might perceive themselves, particularly in the intro bio class, which is kind of one of the main classes that I teach, um, in ways that helps me support them better to be successful in the course, right? Yeah. Um, that's the Cliff Note version of the story, right? I mean, because you're asking about identity and that's a whole, a beautiful story to tell, right? But it's, it's, there's mm -hmm. a lot to it, as, as I'm sure you know. Um, yeah, yeah. But in terms of how it impacts like the teaching, I would say that's, that's the main thing. No, that's a very powerful um, perspective, mm -hmm. right? You know, to, to be able to look at, uh, you know, different, you know, being the subject and the object of it as well. Right. You know, that's, right. that's a very interesting perspective. And, you know, at our university, and I'm sure at other universities as well, uh, we have micro-credentials. And mm -hmm. uh, one of them is on, um, you know, teaching, inter like teaching international students. And mm -hmm. one of the things that we often talk about, even with our own center, you know, as I like to remind our educators is that no student, like when we're talking about teaching students. One of the things that I talk about starting off, I ask the question of why is it important for us to teach inclusively? And typically, you know, people, you know, the, the surface level things of it is, you know, we should be doing it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one of the, the central aspects of it is thinking about the intersectionality behind all of our behind all of our students and there's mm -hmm. often this graphic that I put up on the screen as I'm presenting and it has just you know some of the surface level things that we typically think about um, but as you you know indicated right you know being um, a person who is uh, identified whether or not it's by your own right identification mm -hmm. as being black or our society telling you that you are black right you know you said you came here and then you didn't know right. that so people right. just told you right so being identified as mm -hmm. as a black person but then right. other aspects of you that create aspects of in-group membership as well as like out-group right. membership as well. Right. And all of that contributes significantly to, mm -hmm. you know, the educational experience, whether or not, you know, some of them are similar or mm -hmm. dissimilar, you know, so on and so forth. But no, that's, that's really important for our, educa our educators, learners uh, to keep in mind as well as it relates to, you know, how we're teaching and, you know, how we group students as well, right? Not everybody's experience is, is going to be the same. So no, I, I really yeah. appreciate it. Now, um, as I stated, you know, I recently interviewed uh, ICs and, and Flo uh, Flower, not Florida, Flo Flower, <laughs> <laughs> and we talked about the first section of the book, you know, before the term, which was a really great section, really loved everything that was covered inside of that. I'm really excited about this next step in terms of being able to talk about during the semester. So much of what was addressed in your contribution, as I believe, is, you know, talking about the day-to-day interactions and aspects of inclusive teaching, namely uh, trust, uh, building belonging, structure, and then support. Mm -hmm. So for you, why was it so important for you to take on this particular section? And, and why is it important for us to identify trust, belonging, structure, and support as critical aspects mm -hmm. of the day-to-day -day components of inclusive teaching? 
So two questions there. Why, you know, why it's important to identify those things, but then also why I took that section on, um, you know, you, you, you mentioned it earlier that about that teaching is social. Um, I think we're making some progress, but I still feel like we are fighting a culture of to teach and the value of you getting the privilege and opportunity to teach a college classroom. It's only because you have a specialty in a discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I'm not here to dismiss the specialty. You know, we need, we need that for several reasons, but um, to teach being an inherently social process, they have very, very specific and extensive things that you need to know to make that social experience a success. So the trust, the belonging, the making of relationships, that, that really undergirds everything that's done. And one of the reasons why we wrote that in that way is it, it, there's a little bit out there in some of the literature, the science the literature, the teaching and learning literature of, you know, strategies to make students more engaged in classrooms, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, a lot of times you read some strategies and you, you wonder, like, are you talking about people? Like, do you think like just adding seven clickers to a class will suddenly make it inclusive? Like, you know, <laughs> and, and this is, I'm not saying I'm against clickers. I'm saying that it needs context, right? You, you need, you know, it's almost as though somebody just tells you, I, I, I went to this restaurant and had a good date with this person. And then you just assume, oh, so if I go to that restaurant, the date will be good, right? No, there are other factors that made the date good. So you can't just take the same thing that that person used and apply it to your situation or assume magic will happen. Right. And there's a whole lot of structural issues with why sometimes there's some intellectual laziness to run to the best practices approach, right? So mm-hmm. I don't want to castigate any particular individual, but uh, I, I just want to make sure that, that people understand when we talk about trust and belonging and relationships, these are time investments. These are emotional investments. These are even spiritual investments. These, these are things that when you are in that room, when you are online or whatever your modality is, you, you, you have this radar that is just so fine-tuned to all of the workings of the, of the classroom that you are ready to respond and adapt to anything that's going south or north or east or west, right? And that's why in that section, you would also find both Flower and I basically wrote a case study of each of our classes because we also didn't want to communicate that, hey, we are the arrogant outsiders who wanna come tell you how to run your class inclusively. So just do these things we tell you or your money back, right? That, that, I mean, that was <laughs> never gonna be right. So, so the, the, the whole point of writing the case study was to say, look, all of this stuff is great. The research is great. We stand by it. But what matters is the details. What matters is when I show up you know, before the fall semester and I start putting all of these ideas to work, like, how do I handle nuance? How do I handle when things go south? How do I handle students who might just really resist this? How am I to handle, you know, realizing that I took on more than I could chew, right? You know, how all these little questions that come up in, I think, any, you know, the average reader's mind, um, we hope to sort of address with that. And a, a lot of my professional development focus is helping people with the nuance, uh, which is why I think that particular section appealed to me. Yeah, no, and I, I one appreciated um, just the overall the breakdown of the things that, but like the practicality of it. You know, the things mm-hmm. that you can do before you start the term, 
transitioning that to you know what you can do during the term and then of course we're going to be um i'm going to be speaking with mays uh next on the things with mm-hmm. uh, with after the term and actually you know i'm doing a presentation at the uh national conference on race and ethnicity next week ah, yep, yep, yep. Um, when, so when, the, did, when are the meeting this year uh new orleans okay hey, yeah okay. uh i was already looking at the uh <laughs> looking at the weather i'm like please don't let it be too warm in new orleans. <laughs> so um I actually did take y'all's approach with that, right? So mm-hmm. uh, my presentation is on anti, like uh, I'm proposing uh, a framework for teaching, uh, for anti-racist pedagogy, but mm-hmm. I broke it down, you know, looking at how the way that you all did it, but just looking mm-hmm. at things that folks can do, you know, before the term, during the term, and then after the term, and then cycling that back into before you start that mm-hmm. next term, here are some things that you all can uh, can get uh, can get started with doing. Um, I'm going to go back to something that you stated because mm-hmm. I really appreciate the perspective on the privilege of teaching. And just from your perspective, can you just talk about like what that means? Like when you think about the privilege of teaching, what does that mean to you? Why is it a privilege? Because I don't, I, I think of the education process, the, the formal education process at least, beyond the typical parameters, it tends to get discussed in papers, in media, in even in casual conversation, right? A lot of times people associate this with degrees and GPAs and awards, and this will take you on to a very lucrative career. And, and again, I don't want to be dismissive of the importance and value of all of that. But I actually think of education in terms of our role to continue this imperfect, but evolving democratic experiments. And our responsibility to prepare students to be active participants in that. And so regardless of what major you have and what career you go on to be, uh, are going to fulfill and um, you know, what intellectual growth you've experienced, the ways in which you think about voting, the ways in which you think about community, the ways in which you think about you know, dialogue and disagreement and, and um, and, and compromise, um, you know, these are civic values that I think are agnostic to discipline. And mm-hmm. we can look back through the centuries of this democratic experiment and see the consequences of those features being not paid attention to very well. Um, and without, you know, starting a whole new podcast here, um, you know, I, I think, I reflect on those moments very seriously. Let me put it that way, right? And so, so therefore, when I'm in an intro bio class, as silly as it might sound to some people, I'm not thinking of the end of semester grade. I'm not thinking of closing gaps and all of that. I mean, that, that stuff happens. I mean, we do it. We have papers out showing that, but that, that's, not, that's not the real big reason I'm there, right? I'm thinking of mm-hmm. you 20, 25 years from now, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking of you get an opportunity in my classroom to meaningfully engage people who are different, to hear about Tuskegee and Henrietta Lacks and American Breeders Association, but then also hear about, you know, the vaccine we made in like two minutes. Well, we didn't make it in two minutes, right? But I mean, but there's, there's good and in between and there's mistakes. And I, I want you to hear the whole story of this beautiful thing called science. And mm-hmm. then the positive story that are not so good, I want you to hear, I want us to explore, what did we learn from when we made those mistakes and how, how are we set up now going forward to not repeat that? 
And that is the beauty of education. It's the opportunity to learn. It's not just to hear something. It's not just to, to sit in it and be, feel bad about it and get angry and, you know, this teacher made me feel upset. No, no, no. It's to learn from something, whether that something is good or whether that something is dark, right? So from that perspective, we don't shy away from any aspect of our factual history. We always cite our sources. We always look at original data sets. And we, 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 you know, I know the term trigger warning has come into disrepute, but we do say like, look, we understand it. If this is the first time you're seeing this stuff, it may make you feel a type of way, mm -hmm. right? And we have things in place at the beginning of class, not, not individual like days of class, in the beginning of the course, that, that prepares students to say like, this is a space where we can talk about everything within some boundaries, right? There's some red lines, but we're gonna have difficult conversations because that's part of your education, not mm -hmm. just your biology education, but your civic education, right? So to me, when I put all of that weight <laughs> on the class, it now becomes not just a job, it becomes, it is a privilege. Mm -hmm. I, I'm given an opportunity to, at, you know, I used my class size used to be 155. So 155 students every fall to usher them into a future that's theirs to shape and theirs to do something meaningful with in ways that are equitable, in ways that are inclusive, in ways that are respectful. That is nothing less than a privilege. Yeah. No, I love that. That's um, that's really beautiful. And I love that you're also connecting, you know, the content pieces of it. You know, um, and this goes back to, I don't know if you've read a lot of, um, John Dewey's work, you know, in educational mm -hmm, philosophy. Mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that I appreciated so much from from his work is, and this is just paraphrasing, but one of the things that he essentially says is that we often confuse the subject in the class with right. being the subject being the content when the subject is actually the subjects, the right. people inside of that space, mm -hmm. right. right? So it's going in what to what you're talking about, you know, right. and that's one of the things I also try to pride myself on is while I want you to walk away from that class, mm -hmm. having, you know, high level of, you know, understanding of the contents that we discussed. I hope you're, I hope that you're a much better human being moving forward right. <laughs> as oh, we yeah. move outside of that class. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, Paulo Freire has another, has said it in a different way in the book, Pedagogia Solidarity. Uh -huh. um, and he told, in that case, he was talking about teaching math. You know, people talk about teaching mathematics. It's like, no, you're teaching students and, Elizabeth Mohey had a paper back in 1996. The title of the paper is I Teach Students, Not Subjects. Yeah. Right? And that paper was actually an ethnography of a high school chemistry classroom, right? And that was the, the title was sort of the synopsis of it. Mm. When, you, when you rephrase the experience as teaching students, now you broaden the scope of what you need to do to make that experience successful. If uh -huh. it's just teaching subjects, you are essentially saying my job is to deliver information. Yep. You are, you are basically saying my job is to tell you how cool chemistry is or how cool biology is, which is a part of it. But when you say you're teaching students, that's a whole different proposition, right? And I think yeah. that, that right there is the, is the challenge for our system moving forward to uh -huh. really truly understand what teaching students entails. Yeah, and that moves into uh, something else that you also stated that I just wrote mm -hmm. down. You stated earlier, you said, you know, that it's, Teaching is also, it's, a, it's an investment of time, emotions, and, and spirit, right? It's a spiritual mm -hmm. investment mm -hmm. as well. And let's talk about the two-way street of that, because uh -huh. I think that oftentimes as instructors or educators, we go in and we expect students to make a whole bunch of, 
you know, compromises, you know, in order to, you know, navigate and be successful inside of that class. And today, you know, it's just difficult with everything that is going on. We're still in a pandemic, right? You know, mm-hmm. I started off by this by saying that, you know, I'm sick. I thankfully oh, I tested fact, negative fact, for COVID. Pandemic was real, really? What? Yeah, yeah. But you know, you know, and then even now, just thinking about the general makeup of today's college. Today's college student demographics are so much more diverse than what they've mm-hmm. ever been. We have way more students of color. We have way more international students. We have way more, mm-hmm. you know, uh, parents who are who are students. You know, so thinking about mm-hmm. all of that, you know, why, you know, how can educators today during the semester, right, when it comes to building relationships. How can we start to humanize students more in thinking about their time and their spiritual and their emotional investments and using that as a way to build more inclusive learning environments? Yeah, well, I think the answer to your question is embedded in the term DEI, mm-hmm. which is one of those things that gets lobbed around and you're not always sure that people mean the same thing when they say it, right? So just for clarity's purposes, you know, to me, diversity is a descriptive word. It describes a situation where there's a lot of different things in the same space. That's, to me, that's all it is. It's not a verb, right? <laughs> Diversify is just to make something diverse. So, so diversity can't be a goal because that is just achieved by having a lot of different things of something in a space. It's yeah. a fine thing to have, but it's, it, it, people have to appreciate it. That's just really the beginning right? Inclusion is what you do with the diversity. So we could have a lot of different identities in a space, but nobody feels included, right? Uh-huh. And, and, and what, what you go about, uh, what the things you do to go about making people feel included is the work you do to understand the diversity that's in the room. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. that's, and that's across the board, right? That's, that's ethnicity, uh, uh, national status, um, orientation, you know, you name it, right? And, and not just understand it as like, okay, they exist, I can talk to them, I can ask them things, whatever. It's also your work as an instructor to read and understand the scholarship of navigating the American experience as an ex, right? And, and mm-hmm. not say, not, this is not Brian saying you have to now go and get a PhD in diversity studies, right? <laughs> but, right. But, but, but please be, please read enough to be dangerous, right? Read enough to, to, to realize how much you may not know about how people navigate the world, right? And then I, I promise you, I promise you that automatically you will start having a different lens and a different feeling about some of the very same assignments, the very same language that you may have been using in the past, the very same feelings you had about people's behavior or how they navigate an experience. Once you know more, you know, NBC used to have a, a slogan, the more you know, <laughs> it went away. I don't know why it was kind of cool in my opinion, but this is the, the good application. Like the more you know, you can't unknow it, right? And once you know it, the, the, the hope, my, my hope for you is that it then automatically leads to a change in behavior. The equity is the outcome of that being done in a sophisticated and thoughtful way, mm-hmm. right? So, the DI, I think, is a really kind of major bridge step because that is where, that, that is what allows, uh, what requires, I'm sorry, all the learning about the different diverse elements are. Mm-hmm. No, so one, let me just say, read enough to be dangerous is now going to be swapped with that other quote that I had from you <laughs> in, my, <laughs> in my email signature. 
Um, <laughs> so for the, for the listeners, um, I actually had this quote from, from Brian and this other author uh, that was at the bottom of my email signature. And so when I reached out, I completely forgot that that was at the bottom of my signature. <laughs> so in requesting for you to be on the podcast, I was like, this is to let you know, this is has always been <laughs> at the bottom of my email signature. This is not me brown dozing. But I'm definitely going to take that and put that at the bottom now. Read enough to be dangerous because, <laughs> you know, I've also found myself, you know, the more that you know and the, mm-hmm. the more that you're able to put, you know, definitions and concepts and terms on different things, it makes it a lot mm-hmm. a lot harder for people to, to, to disagree or be opposed to you when you when you definitely have read a lot more mm-hmm. than other folks in those subject areas. Uh, but let's just switch gears a little bit and in going into the relationship piece of it. Mm-hmm. Because when I read this in chapter four, you state that relationships are the single most important factor in college education. And when I read that, I started to think about all of my favorite instructors and every single last one of them, it was because of not just the dynamics inside of the classroom and what I learned, it was truly because of the relationship that I built with them. I have this um, faculty member who is now the interim president of my alma mater, uh, Dr. Mm -hmm. Uh, Corey Cockrell. But I remember, Mm -hmm. you know, being in class with her my sophomore year and I did the, the infamous Hey, I have a D in this class. How do I pass? Right, right. <laughs> and she simply just said to me, "Why don't you move to the front of the class, um, and you'll 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 do much better." So I ended up passing mm-hmm. that class. I don't know if it was with a B or a B plus, but I ended up changing my major to communication mm-hmm. arts, and um, you know, just everything everything that I was able to do. By the time I graduated, I graduated as um, one of the top students in the communication arts program. And uh, I told her before I graduated that when I do, when I do go off to school, you know, get an advanced degree, I'm going to be your first student, your advisee to earn a PhD. And I walked last May and she was, she was there, she was there, uh, she was there, you know, in the audience to watch me earn my doctorate degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was just one of the few, one of the few people right. I can mm-hmm. sit back and think about, you know, who I became and and attribute a lot of that to to the relationships that I built with them. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, just talking about that, you know, you all remind us that healthy relationships are not only central to learning, but they're central to building learning spaces that also feel safe. So how do you think about the process of building relationships and safe spaces? And then how does that create the, how does that create the foundation of your own practice? Yeah. So before I answer that question directly, I want to just point out a data set. For your audience, because I think a lot of times people, you know, listen to your your story and listen to me, and you know, they love the story. It moves them, but it 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 can it can sound anecdotal, right? And it's like, well, you know, I'm glad that it out for you, but I just want to come and get a degree. You know, several years ago there was a Gallup Purdue poll, um, and I'm I hope I get the details right here, but they surveyed thousands of people in the workforce. And they asked several questions about job satisfaction, happiness, success at the job. And they found that job success was strongly correlated with two things. One was the individual can remember doing a major project when they were in college. Or, and or the, the, the individual can remember somebody with whom, who was a mentor to them. They had a specific relationship, right? And this, it didn't matter what type of school it was, whether it was Ivy, regional, whatever it was. So, so what I'm saying is that 
what you just shared about your mentor, there's empirical evidence that that is the thing that people remember. That's the, that's the thing that makes them successful. This is not to say that it's not important to also be able to, not also be able to differentiate third order, you know, equations in Calc three or you know, run a gel in bio, right? The skills matter. I don't I don't think that was the point of it. Mm-hmm. But the thing that bubbled to the top, the thing that people remember is not respiration, it's the people. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what sticks with you, right? And but but it, it's it's interesting for for a, 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 an institution that sort of runs on evidence, and we need proof. We need to see data before we make a change. Like even when the data is evidence that the relationships matter, it still it still is tough for people to make that kind of psychological shift to mm-hmm. what that looks like in the classroom, right? And I understand that. I'm not even being too critical. Um, so so for me. Um, Tone matters, you know, how we set the tone matters. Um, this is happens even before I meet them in person. Uh, there's the right reflection assignments where they do a values affirmation. There's literature on that as well. Um, I send them some get to know you surveys. I send them some things on myself. A couple of years, I would do a recording of myself and send it to them and, you know, meet me. This is who I am. First day of class, we do a lot of what we call guide posting, which is talking about the, 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 the things that will guide our discussions and the respect factor that is needed for difficult dialogues. Um, but most importantly, I have a very explicit discussion. Sorry, I just had a lightning strike. Um, most important to me is I have a very explicit discussion on the difference between potential and readiness, mm-hmm. right? We say out loud, and I say we because I haven't been an assistant and we operate as a team. We say out loud that we believe everybody in this class can do well in biology. We don't say everybody will get an A. <laughs> we are not promising that. And I don't say that part, right? But I'm just saying that I don't, doing well doesn't mean you'll get an A this semester. We believe that you have the capacity to do this subject well. Mm-hmm. We understand that not everybody is in a place to thrive right out the gate. And that's okay. That's, that's perfectly fine, right? Everybody, you know, and I know this because I surveyed them and I know what high schools they came from, et cetera. So I know what the preparation is, right? And that this is a very technical discipline. It's a lot of fun, but we use funny words to describe proteins and enzymes and cells and things like that. And so, you know, like any technical environment, it takes a while to get used to it. Mm-hmm. So we provide you a lot of opportunities. You, the student, we will provide you a lot of opportunities to spend a lot of time in this space, right? There's, there's class, there's something we call student hours, which most people call office hours. We call it student hours. Um, and our job, our job is to figure out what are the ways we can move you from your current state of readiness to your full potential. Mm-hmm. And that right there for me is what teaching is. How do I move you from your current state of readiness to your full potential? So the kinds of strategies that that needs is very intense, very transparent, and very respectful feedback. It requires me giving you advice on not just how to study in terms of the mechanics of it, but how do you organize your time and your life to create the cognitive space to be your best self? 
it means that you have to learn how to do science with people, right? And, and navigating those relationships, right? It means that I am drawing on, and I'm serious here, I'm drawing on principles from theater. Yeah, I used to work with a colleague who's a professor of theater and we talk about, you know, how do you read a room? How do you look at somebody's body who's not saying any words to you, but telling you a thousand different things? Right? How do you explain something? How do you leverage, you know, I'm African descent, I come from the Griot tradition, like how do you leverage storytelling, right? And intonation and feel and, and spirituality, right? To make things come alive in a space, right? So building relationships doesn't just mean you come in my office and become best friends. Like building relationships, I can do that with a class of 150, being in front of a room, and yes, lecturing some, but then also stopping and we do this thing and we go back and forth. And so I, I like the relationship really comes from this sort of conversational approach to doing school, right? Uh -huh. And in that conversational approach, like every, like every relationship, you have to listen, you have to hear feedback, you have to make space for that person to be themselves, you have to be vulnerable, right? So I lean on all the things that make any relationship fruitful. And I just really apply that to teaching. Uh huh. Yeah, no, and I appreciate that as well. Um, and you're hitting on something that's also um, a major question that I've fielded a bunch of different times, uh, which is the aspect of teaching large courses. And, mm -hmm. you know, typically when we're talking about inclusive teaching, I think some folks think that, I mean, the, the, the size, I'm not going to ignore it, right? The size of the course in terms mm -hmm. of how many students are enrolled in each uh, section certainly matters. Um, I think that some folks who are teaching these courses, you know, you stated 150, and we have uh, faculty at our institution that teach even, you know, larger courses than that. Mm -hmm. What are some, and you all talk about it in this section as well, um, you and as well as Flower talk about, you know, teaching large courses. You can just go a little bit more into just from your own, and of course, right, you know, they're not talking about this is exactly how to do it, but right just in your own perspective, like what things have been helpful for you and your approach to building relationships and, and mm -hmm. teaching large courses? Well, the first thing I would say is, you know, you have to, you have to take it easy on yourself a little bit in that the natural, the natural tendency is for people to think that the only way relationships can be built is through these really, uh, uh, small scale one-on-one -on -one interactions where you get a lot of back and forth with one individual. And that may be the dream, right? Um, that may be the idyllic color scenario, but the reality is that even people who have small classes these days are teaching like five of them, right? Mm, <laughs> so yeah. it's, 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 it's not a model that's scalable given the size of our campuses. Um, and, and when I say be easy in yourself, one of the things I really came to realize is you can really impact students in ways that you don't realize that you're impacting them. I have had students come up to me years after class. And I try to remember a lot of students, you know, I might remember them by faith, but not their name, you know. And they'll say, you know, Professor, I remember when you talked about this and finding meaning and purpose in your career, and it really made me think differently about my trajectory. I don't even remember what I said. <laughs> but they remember. That's what matters, right? And so, so you, you can be changing lives through any interaction, even if it's one where it's you addressing a group of 150. So the take-home lesson from, from that is invest in every moment, 
whether it's an mm. email exchange, whether it's I ran into you in a corridor, whether it's you happen to be given a motivating speech at the beginning of a class, whether it's the feedback session, whether it's you know what most people call office hours, like every interaction is an opportunity for education to happen. Yeah. And if you look at it that way, then you realize that relationships can be built in a variety of ways. I said relationship. I didn't say one-on-one best friend relationship. A yeah. relationship, broadly defined, can have different parameters, right? I have a relationship with every student, but it's different if I only saw them in my office once a semester or if they, you know, stalk me after class into the next class. You know, so it just is what it is. It's fine. But they all they all relationships and they all matter, right? Yeah. No, that's um no, that's great. And that also leads into the next piece about you know belonging mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm an educational historian, so I appreciate mm-hmm. the section um where you all talk about the historical and social context of of belonging mm-hmm. in higher education and then drawing that to um just some of the the reasons why and that contribute to belonging issues in higher education today, right? Mm-hmm. So Um, Although you are a scientist, you share a little bit about Mm -hmm. why post-secondary history of exclusion is so critical to understanding contemporary um, challenges with inclusion today. So how does this set the table, um, you know, talking about the history of exclusion, how does this set the table for belonging um, and and the general lack of belonging often experienced by marginalized students? Well, It'd be nice to to report, right, that uh-huh. we are the promised land. <laughs> um, but but we're not, and you know I think part of the challenge with very well-meaning people and institutions is, you know, it, there's a desire to just be handed the right thing to do, and if I do it, everything will go away. Mm-hmm. And that type of checkbox approach. Um, has hard limits on how effective it can be because it's not really getting at the underlying cause of why belonging isn't happening in this particular situation, right? So let me give a very specific example, you know, and, and you know, I'll, I'll just give you a funny sidebar. I was, I was sending a paper to a journal and the editor was saying, I gave a whole feel on redlining, right? And I, the editor was saying, well, you know, our audience kind of knows this stuff, you know, you can just get into the strategy then, as somebody who does faculty development around the country, like four or five institutions a month, I could tell you that is not true, right? But <laughs> but people think they know, and they and even if they know or they know of it, they think they there's a, either they think oh that's ancient history, so whatever, right? Yeah. Or they don't quite understand how that impacts somebody in a classroom, right? So redlining was a 1930s event. That's when it started, right? In theory, it was outlawed in 1968 to the Fair Housing Act. Right, mm-hmm. Cortez. I moved to Rhode Island in 2014, and it was still settling. They settled a redlining case in 2014. Mm. Right, and that's not the only one. I've read of others around the country. So, is it as rampant as 1935? No, but does it still exist sometimes? Yes. Okay. So, so let's check the box of it's still a thing in some places. Okay. Now let's shift to a student who grew up in a neighborhood that was either historically or currently redlined, right? If you understand how redlining works, you will then understand that in nature of the K-12 schools in that neighborhood, oh, by the way, they are, you know, you, you will go to a neighborhood school. Don't get us started on school choice. That's a whole other conversation, right? We're not right. going to do that. But 
let's just say they went to their neighborhood school, right? Let's talk about how schools are funded, right? And property tax, like talk about all of that, right? So now 18 years of this, and then they, they, they end up in your classroom. That's great. You know, Cornell West used to have a thing. He would say, we like to celebrate the exceptional Negro <laughs> yeah. and, not, and not want to address the conditions where that person had to damn near fly in order to be, you know, resilient and to be successful in your classroom, right? So this is like the, the pedagogical equivalent of that, right? So mm. I'm not saying students can't be resilient. I'm not trying to infantilize anybody, right? But I'm saying that in knowing their stories and talking to them and living next to one of those communities, right? You understand that when they show up, sometimes with low readiness, which is what I'll call it right now, the factors that resulted in that are factors that had nothing to do with them. And in the state of Rhode Island, where I used to work, I had students living in Providence, 35 minutes away from the campus. When they showed up to intro bio, they would tell me, this is the most white people I've ever seen in my life in one space. This is a 35 minute drive, right? Mm -hmm. And then you overlay on top of that, all of the distrust that some of them have accumulated because the nature of the interaction with majority identified people has been one where they had little to no power and where that power was flexed and exercised in ways that worked to their detriment. So there's every reason why somebody might walk into that classroom and feel, yeah, I don't belong here. I am not saying it's deterministic. I'm not saying that, you know, if you have X, you'll definitely get Y, right? But I'm saying that to, in order to read to become a little dangerous, part of being a little bit dangerous is knowing the conditions that inform why some people may or may not feel belonging, right? Mm -hmm. I told you earlier in the same podcast, I didn't feel like I belonged at Morehouse. And everybody looked like, right? So, so this, is not a, this is not just restricted to one type of identity. This uh -huh. is a psychological reality of just how we live our lives. The belonging research, to the best of my recollection, began with immigrants in Spain. Like, there's studies around that. Lovers et al., I think the citation is. So, so you, you, I hope people are kind of getting that this is not just, oh, get, tell me the five things that make students belong. No, well, I could do that. But also read why belonging is a thing. Like read about mm. what it means for anybody to go into a space where suddenly there are cues coming at you, you know, telling you that your makeup, your style, your accent, your build, your, you know, identity is, is different to what the norm is here. And wh what that triggers automatically in you, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And that perfect segue, because you also talk about um, the imposter phenomenon um, mm -hmm. in this section of the book, as well as it relates to um, to belonging. And, you know, you you probably know this, right? You know, <laughs> even when you earn a doctorate degree, there's still aspects <laughs> of you that is just like, am I qualified to talk about <laughs> to talk about this? You know, even with the even with the presentation that I'm doing next week, I just did a whole yeah. dissertation on yeah. uh, on anti-racism and then now i'm working at a center for teaching and learning so mm -hmm. i'm combining two passions into into a presentation next week and as mm -hmm. i've been putting this together actually some of the things that you're even talking about right now are some of the things right so you know before the term you know when you're talking about committing yourself to being an anti-racist educator we have to also commit ourselves to understanding 
the challenges that are facing people of color within our society, mm -hmm. particularly if you're working at a predominantly white institution that is now, mm -hmm. you know, as you're talking about, we're, you're, we're doing these pushes for more diversity, but part of the challenge is that we're, we're advocating for diversity, but we're not implementing inclusion practice, inclusionary practices right. at the rate that we need to, right? right? Which naturally creates these continued or these exacerbated uh, belonging mm. barriers inside of these spaces, right. which can then consequentially lead to uh, this imposter phenomenon, right? So as you all described, the imposter phenomenon is when one feels, you know, either fake or that they don't belong uh, in that mm -hmm. particular space or that their accomplishments could also be undeserved. Mm -hmm. So this can be symptomatic, again, right, of the socializing experiences right. where minoritized people in particular uh, internalize a lot of the social messages that we receive in, uh, right. in certain spaces. So in what ways do you aim to affirm your students and help build their confidence and belief that they belong in that space? You know, it, that's a, a little bit of a tricky one in terms of, you know, the imposter syndrome as a term is predicated a little bit on a little bit of a fixed, you know, notion of, of what you are impostering, right? So it, it's, huh? it kind of assumes that there's a way to be a scientist or a way to be a professor, a way to be an academic, and then your behavior in that space, if it's different, if, it, if it's not hewing to the norm, then you become an imposter. Or at least you feel like an imposter because you can recognize, right, the difference in your behavior to what you're seeing, right? And the, the, the other kind of maybe, not maybe, the other definition or way to look at imposter syndrome is, is you know, every field has an expertise and, and there's, there's ways to demonstrate that expertise, you know, to the extent that an academic's job is to get it right. Like, you know, you want to feel if you're up there in front of a mic or you're giving advice that you are in fact doing due diligence because, oh, by the way, it, the, the whole getting it right thing is also built on trust. You want society and your peers and the field to trust you as somebody who will do it right, right? Uh -huh. Here's why I push back on it just a little bit, right? Because sometimes in the first definition, the people who set the rules for what the norm looks like are people who have the privilege, well, I don't know if I'd call it a privilege, but who might be majority identified or who, who are playing by a rule set by people who are not us, who didn't you know, have our experience, have a different, have our culture, have our view of the world. And by doing so, somehow communicate that your way of doing things is either like an insult to this standard bearing way or not good enough, right? And it gets communicated. I, I had a colleague, she was probably well-meaning, but, you know, I am who I am, man. Like I, you know, I'm Caribbean. I like my music. I, you know, I came to school. I play my music loud. I, you know, you walk into my classroom, you might hear music. You might hear see theater going on. You might, I mean, if we get it done, right? My data shows that we get it done, but we get it done our way. And this colleague said to me, you know, one day I'll show you how to be a faculty member. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not mm. how this works. That is how it is. There's no way. No, I, I'll be me. And that's why I told you it start. Like, yes, I use professor and doctor in some cases, but my name is Brian. The PhD stuff is what I do, and hopefully I'm effective at changing lives and my classroom and my colleagues. But but I don't. My my parents. I'm first generation, and my parents said to me the most beautiful thing. You know, your job is to make choices in life that align with your values. After that, that's on you. You don't have to. 
you know, because everybody else is making that choice means that you have to do it to feel like you belong. So in that, from that respect, Cortez, I, I've felt the imposter syndrome feeling coming, but I've, I've kind of ramrodded through it by, by being, by feeling very secure. I, I am very clear with myself what I want out of this job. Uh-huh. And that may run counter to what, you know, some expectations are. But because I have clarity in that, I don't feel like I, and nobody needs to kind of dictate to me what it should look like, <laughs> right? And mm-hmm. so to get to your question more specifically, I think part of my role as a mentor and a, as a teacher is to, to, to show students, grad students, undergrads, that you can, in fact, stay true to your values, right? You know, be a good person, be a good human, um, and, and pursue the things that matter to you and that bring about common good without necessarily having that thing follow the very strict and narrow pathways that sometimes academia lays out before us. Yeah, because it also, I mean, definitely what I heard in that was the assimilationist perspective, right? Of, well, I want to show you how to be a faculty member. Well, yeah, I mean, like, well, who, you know, uh, I had this uh, faculty member, Dr. Dale Stoward, he was an educational philosopher, but yeah, we um, went through this one module of of readings and um, the section was headed off as who decides, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that was, you know, that was a critical question that I often think about now whenever I am, you know, reading whatever type of work, but, you know, who decides that that is what it needs to be or right. who decides what the norms are of that and what justifies those decisions, right? You know, what right. are what's embedded in, in those norms and what's being communicated mm-hmm. through things like that, right? So, you know, there are definitely some some red flags, right? Yeah. <laughs> when you right. when you hear things like that. Well, well I don't want to take up too much too much time too much more of your time. You're about to say something? Yeah, I was gonna ask about that, um, because I had a so too um so I'm gonna jump on another zoom in a second here. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, okay. Well, so just uh any any uh well one, thank you so much for your time. This has been awesome. I really appreciate mm. everything that you had to say. Uh we definitely need to get together and talk about <laughs> more of your work, yeah, and everything. But just any last remaining comments or recommendations that you would like to share with uh instructors today on just being more equity minded? I guess you know, I, I wish everybody well. I mean, I, I don't just say that because it's a nice thing to end a podcast with. I mean, I I, I truly do because this is it's difficult, but enthralling and emotional work. And um, I think sometimes what's communicated is this is you're only doing it well if you're exhausted and burnt out. And I would never an advocate for that. So I just really wish everybody is able to read the book, see things that, that are helpful, but also, you know, we actually have a part in the book. And I know you're going to talk to Dr. Maisie Matsun on self-care, right? That we, mm-hmm. we want you to be well, to sleep well, to love your family and your friends and to love yourself most of all. Um, and then I guess I'll just restate what I've said earlier is, you know, please keep reading and reading enough to be dangerous. Um, we need, we need more of that. So appreciate you having me on here, Quartus. Yeah, no problem. Thank you very much, everyone. Let's give a virtual round of applause to, to Brian Dewsbury. Uh, thank you all. Thank you very much for joining us. And to the rest of you, again, please make sure that you pick up a copy of uh, the Norton Guide to Equity-Minded Teaching. Uh, we're, as I've already communicated to Isis and Flower. Uh, we're, we're actually using this as a part of our series 
with our Just and Equitable Teaching micro-credential program, um, yeah. helping our educators to, you know, frame the ways in which they're teaching their courses and structure it to be more practical as well. So once again, thank you uh, very much and looking forward to wrapping up next with Mays. Uh, other than that, thank you very much and we'll talk to you soon. So if I can't hear the applause, did it really happen? <laughs> yeah, it did. <laughs> <laughs>